Hello and welcome to episode 47 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 1st of October 2018. I'm Joe and with me are Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello. Yes, no failing, he's got uh, family stuff to deal with. Um, It's the spoopy month, 1st of October. Uh, We've got loads of news to get into so we should probably get straight on with it. Uh, The first one, failing, would have had uh, something to say about... But uh, I'm sure you do as well, Graham. So KDE Neon has now been rebased on Ubuntu 18.04. Yes. So um, I should have tried it, really. But I am too scared of upgrading my 16.04 Neon installation, which actually is my day- daily driver on my kind of home office PC um, to 18.04. So I've not tested it out. I will say that this purely subjectively, I've not seen many people complain about it, which implies to me they've done a good job they've certainly been testing it for months um and i'm usually quite suspicious of any upgrade or i used to be in the past anyway my experience actually has been pretty good with ubuntu i um i did have a xenial and then updated to bionic and that worked so hopefully neon has the same experience yeah very exciting to see the new version of neon i know it's extremely popular and it's an extremely popular way of consuming kde as it were so you get the the best of both worlds you get the the fresh neon goodness and you get the stable lts underneath and as says on their uh, their release announcement um all the goodness of snaps in there as well well yeah being based on ubuntu of course you've got snaps so yeah, I've actually tried it out. Um, I didn't try upgrading from the 16.04 version, but the 18.04 version worked absolutely perfectly from what I could see, and it was just very similar to what I remember from the last version, except that obviously the base is being upgraded. I, I wonder, we're very nearly at um, Ubuntu 18.10 now, so I wonder, has it taken them a bit too long to do this, or is this sort of an expected time frame? Well, 1804 will always have the the new kernels, the hardware enablement kernels and the supported uh, new kernels backported to 1804. So it makes a lot of sense. Let 1804 come out, let the dust settle and the bugs be, uh, you know, smoothed off um, and then upgrade and then stick on 1804 for the next five years where you're going to get those low level upgrades, kernel upgrades, driver upgrades, all the security fixes in there. It makes a lot of sense. So you think it was a tactical wait rather than kind of they've been working on it since even before 1804 came out and this is the soonest they could possibly have got it out you think it's more a case of they waited a little bit and wanted to wait for the point one release and make sure it was 100 percent rock solid yeah I, I don't know if it was tactical or not if it was me then i would definitely wait for the first point release to get all of the benefit of those fixes uh rolled up into a new iso um after that i think that the pressure's off and you can wait until you're ready um and then just release. So who knows? Um, I, I don't think it's too late. I think it's a, a smart move to wait until the point release and then just release when you're ready. Make sure it's good quality. Graham, you know it makes sense. Just do it. Just, uh, I don't know, close your eyes and hope for the best. Uh, if I didn't have work the next day, maybe, uh, maybe uh, <laughs> a weekend or take a couple of... Yeah, because if it breaks... Well, the last time I did an update with Neon, it did install um, Plasma integration plugins into both Firefox and Chrome um, and that stopped Hangouts working, although there was absolutely no clue that it had installed these integration plugins and that that was what was causing the problem in Hangouts, basically. And, you know, we rely on Hangouts for our meetings every day. Um, so it was basically I was muted in, in everything that I tried to do. And as much as I tried to blame Pulse Audio, it wasn't Pulse Audio's fault. Ah, you should have uh, implemented a, a mumble-only rule. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get some free software in Canonical. 
Yeah, oh, that's an interesting point there because I, um, when I installed it, it did suggest that I installed those plugins, but it didn't actually do it hmm. for me. So I wonder what happened there. Maybe they've learned from that mistake, hopefully. Yeah, because at, at least, I mean, at the time, it took a couple of days for there to be enough kind of momentum behind the people reporting the same issue for it to be detected. You know, so we're all clueless, really, at the point of maybe reinstalling or refresh install. And unfortunately, the way I've run KDE for years is that I copy my configuration over and, you know, just hate reinstalling. I just avoid it at all costs on my kind of day-to-day machine um, because I've changed so much about the setup. Yeah. Well, I'm sitting here looking at um, 16.04 Zubuntu, and I still haven't upgraded because this is mission critical, this one. Mm. You know, this is what I do all my recording on and everything. So, you know, my my entertainment PC downstairs and my other laptop, I've upgraded them. But I know what you mean. You just, you kind of, if it's not broken, don't fix it. And that's sort of the point of an LTS, isn't it? That you've got yeah. that extra time. So, uh, yeah, I'll get around to it at some point, probably in around April next year when it officially goes out of support for me. But, uh, yeah, well, do, when you do upgrade, do let us know how it goes. I'll promise to do it in the next two weeks and uh, I can report back next time. Okay, cool. And I don't think failing will. I think he's too scared as well. So. <laughs> um, all right, well, let's move on and talk about um, AMP, Accelerated Mobile Pages. So Google have come in for a lot of criticism about them just controlling this. This is a, the, the new-ish uh, mobile standard for very light, quick uh, web pages. And Google have had a very tight grip on this. Um, they've pushed all the standards. They, it's been open source from the beginning. They've claimed that it's like a community project, but the reality is they've been very much in charge of it. And now they have decided that they're going to kind of loosen that grip a little bit and go for much more of a kind of open governance model, which I'm still a bit skeptical about, but I think is of note that they are going to do this. Um, and I think it's, well, it's got to be better than the situation was before whether it is good enough remains to be seen yeah it's interesting to read this and and obviously the uh, amp developers are all avid listeners of late night linux because they have addressed quite a lot of the concerns that we talked about last time we talked about amp so on the whole yeah this is this makes for interesting reading um they seem to be addressing a lot of the the issues that we raised and a lot of the shortcomings so uh, and they seem to be stressing a lot of the uh, the open source nature of it now and the fact that they've got lots of different contributors and that they come from all over the place. It's not just a Google-centric thing. So it does feel like they are they have acknowledged some of the concerns that people have raised and they're trying to address those. It's encouraging. I feel cynical about it as well. I mean, they make it sound like <laughs> such a humble project, a project that started with just two contributors, you know, nothing to do with the, uh, the helpful search rankings that ah. they were able to leverage. Yeah, and the fact that if you don't implement AMP on your site, then you basically get um, pushed down in the search results. Mm. You know, some people are saying that th- there should be other um, equally good alternatives getting pushed up the search results. But I don't know, can you really blame Google for prioritizing their own thing? I suppose the EU might, but, um, you know, isn't that how <laughs> capitalism works? I don't know. No, you're right. They're looking after their own interests. It's the same with the closing of so many Android components. But um, it's just a pity that there's no kind of, I don't know, World Wide Web Consortium or something that can push their <laughs> own kind of equivalent. 
Yeah, well, old Berners-Lee, he's uh, trying to start some completely new thing, isn't he, now? Which uh, <sighs> sounds like complete vaporware to me. That's that's terrible, that. I mean, considering he was he's a communicator, you know, that's one of those examples where you spend five minutes looking at a site and, sorry, what does it do with solid? Solid, that's it, yeah. I mean, that's why I didn't put it in, because it just doesn't seem... No. I just don't get it. It just it's the screenshot that I saw of that was let's push <laughs> all of the different things together into one app and you know the kids will love it sort of thing and it just I, I just do not get it at all. There's a lot of empty promises. Well, mm. a lot of promises which seem empty at least to me. So whether or not that comes to fruition and becomes anything, I don't know. It just feels very much like it's web 2.0 or you know yeah. it's probably what 5.0 at this point. I just I do not get it. But yes, yeah, Solid, it's called. And um, yeah, I don't know. Have you seen this, Will? No, I haven't. We can't even tell you what it is. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I could. But yeah, it's it's just a lot of promises about taking back control of the web. And, uh, you know, I, I just don't get it. It looks matrix.org, look organized. <laughs> <laughs> it's either going to be something absolutely amazing that I'm just too thick to understand the concept of, and I'm going to eat my words, or it's just going to be yet another startup that goes nowhere. Is he just building his own internet with blackjack and hookers? Is that where, where it's going? <laughs> Maybe. Oh, dear. Um, all right, so we've got a curious coincidence um, over the last couple of weeks, and that is that Fedora 29 and Ubuntu 18.10 have both come out as beaters, and that doesn't happen very often. The stars don't align very often. So it's quite a good opportunity, I thought, to to look at what is different between them. So I suppose, Will, what is different? What's new in 1810 um, on the Ubuntu desktop? As far as I can tell, a theme, and that's about it. Yeah, so the, the theme is new. Um, under, it's the, the changes are under the covers. So we're putting in the new version of GNOME, uh, and which is the same version that's shipping on Fedora 29. Um, uh, we've got a few patches in there that we're carrying that we've pushed upstream that haven't been merged yet. Uh, but by and large, at this point, you know, from a desktop shell perspective, what you get on Fedora 29 and Ubuntu 18.10 are, under the covers, largely similar. You know, it's the same base. Um, but yes, as you say, new theme. We've got our sort of Unity-like uh, user experience, which is what people told us they wanted. So we have made some design decisions and some choices about the way that we think people want to use their computer and we've sort of overlaid that on the top of gnome and with fedora you get that um pure gnome experience as it were which is also available on ubuntu of course one thing that jumped up at me about fedora is the the modular repositories which we saw in the previous version fedora 28 uh, but that was only for the server edition whereas now they're rolling that into uh, the desktop as well and that means that you can run um, various different versions of software concurrently, which is kind of a, um, well, it's a different way of doing it to Ubuntu because you can do that to some extent on Ubuntu, can't you, thanks to Snaps? Yeah, if you want to store two different versions side by side, then, yeah, you've got, um, you've got Snaps for that on Ubuntu. Um, and, yeah, not only is it the application, but it's the full stack and they can coexist. So, yeah, it's a similar goal, different idea. Yeah, it's... Interesting difference there. I mean, that that seems to be the the main difference because apart from uh, the tweaks, you know, to make it more Unity-like, which uh, are not impossible to do on Fedora, and also, of course, it's not impossible to run. It's very easy to run a, a completely stock GNOME 
session on Ubuntu. I take it that is still the case with 18.10. Yeah, you can just install the uh, the vanilla desktop packages and you get the unadulterated version of GNOME. Yeah. And so really, it, that is the differentiator there. Um, and I, I don't know, um, it, do you end up ultimately with a, a potentially quite similar experience on both of them and just with different approaches? Because you've got a similar level of support, you know, a similar length of support. So this isn't an LTS uh, either way. So it's, I don't, it just struck me as interesting that these two came out at the same time. Yeah, well, I, the Ubuntu release cycle was designed around the GNOME release cycle so that these two things would coincide, that we would get the brand new version of the GNOME stack and very shortly afterwards... Um, we'd get a brand new version of Ubuntu, yeah, just just long enough for us to um, to find and fix the bugs that uh, that we thought were absolutely critical. So having the stars align in this way is kind of by design, kind of happy accident, I think. But new version of GNOME comes out, then the uh, the new version of Ubuntu comes out, and if it's not an LTS, then it is paving the way to the next LTS, and so you get these um, minor release versions of GNOME, which we keep up to date so that we can sort of roll roughly with those um, updates as they come in from GNOME, which by the time you get to the next LTS, we can have some certainty that it's absolutely rock solid. And for whatever reason, if it's not, we've got those previous uh, interim releases to choose from and, and sort of select the the most stable release that we think is right for the LTS. Is it fair to say that 18.10 is something of a catch-your-breath release for Ubuntu in that if you look at 17.10, that was a bit of a scramble. Um, and, you know, you did very well with that. And then um, 18.04 obviously was very, very important, the LTS. And now 18.10, it's, do you see what I mean about catch your breath? Just kind of, um, I don't want to say that it's just like a lazily, you know, chucked out thing, but it's, it's, it's not as important as the previous two. Yeah, I think that's fair criticism. Uh, actually, with uh, with 1804.1, well, sorry, the start of the 1810 cycle, we dedicated the first half of the cycle, more or less, to making sure that 1804.1 had all of the bug fixes that we since discovered in 1804 fixed, uploaded, and ready to go. So that when that .1 ISO comes out, because the ISOs are only respun um, for every point release, so any bugs that exist on that ISO... Um, are going to be installed and and you know immediately visible to anybody that installs it from that ISO image. So we have to get the ISOs um, up to date and as good quality as possible for that first point release. And also the OEMs who are releasing laptops with Ubuntu pre-installed ship that point release. So it's very, very important to us to get 1804.1 uh, as high quality as we can possibly do. So yeah, we set aside some time at the start of this cycle to make sure that that was the case. Um, we have upgraded to the new version of GNOME uh, in, in 18.10, and that left a little time for a few other bits and pieces. We started the cycle with some with some pretty lofty goals, or new features we wanted to land, like um, GS Connect, for example, yeah. which when we dug into it in a bit more depth, it turned out that, um, that it wasn't quite up to the quality that we hoped it would be. Uh, we spoke to the upstream developer, and he said, you know what, I'm rewriting the whole thing from scratch, so I'm just going to crack on and, and get that done. So we said, well, then we'll, yeah, we'll wait. There's no point in us shipping something which we know is a bit broken and which is going to get upgraded very shortly anyway. We'll, we'll wait. We'll, we'll wait till the quality is there, and then we'll ship it. So we had to do a few trade-offs, but I, ultimately 1804.1 is, is what benefited. 
Right. So hopefully in nineteen oh four, we're going to see some innovation and excitement then. I think what you'll see between now and the next LTS is small steps towards uh, an LTS which has new features in it. Uh, I don't think you're going to see any big bang changes. Um, we've got some plans, but um, you know we need to do the due diligence that we uh, that we should do to make sure that the plans make sense and that the software that we're interested in is of the right quality. So uh, yeah, you're not going to see any sudden changes, but the the general path between now and the next LTS will bring new features and it will make the next LTS um, a, a lot more interesting. Well, some of the stuff going on with the flavors is interesting. Um, if you look at Lubuntu 18.10, that's going to be the first release of Lubuntu with the LXQt desktop as default, mm. which is a pretty big deal for them. Yeah. I've been following it loosely. I used some of the um, earlier versions when it was Razor Cute. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm surprised it's taken so long because it's taken a good few years and you'd think that the, the massive simplification that it represents in terms of the panel and the desktop wouldn't take too much work. I, I have no idea how much actual code is involved, but it's great they've got some to this stage where they can switch over. Yeah, it's kind of like a very, very lightweight uh, plasma isn't it yeah um because it's cute based you know you've you've got all that cute goodness and it is a very modern desktop because it is based on the latest cute but it is very sort of traditional in its approach and it's very yeah slimmed down i did always like lxde um but you, at some point you just have to accept that something is dead um and move on and um simon quigley has been very influential in this he is sort of just forced them to make this change, I think. Well, not forced, that's the wrong word, but he's been, you know, working very hard to, to make that happen. And I think that now is a good time to introduce it. It gives them another couple of releases before the LTS. Um, and so, yeah, I would encourage people to check it out because LXQ is coming along nicely. And I know that Jonathan Riddle claims that Plasma is really lightweight, and it is much more lightweight than it once was. But um, if you've got really shitty old hardware, then I'd say LXQ is that little bit lighter. And so if you want a Qt-based desktop for shit old hardware, then um, or indeed brand new hardware that you want to get the, the most out of, um, because I know that the uh, Lubuntu, well, yeah, Lubuntu Project, they are keen. Um, Quigley actually wrote a, a post about how they want to refocus and not be for shitty old hardware but i think that that is um a sort of um usp that mm. they're going to find very difficult to shake i think that people are going to always consider lubuntu to be for your older hardware yeah for me it was always about um basically if you wanted to kind of um gnome minimalism without the configuration and i mean in a good way and you find yourself using lots of cute apps and you just want to have that kind of painless integration of uh, cute theming with the panel then in RazorQt and now LXQT. God, it sounds difficult saying the first two letters, LX and then cute. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. Okay, this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Go to do.co slash LNL. That's for late night Linux. If you go there, you'll get $100 credit to get you started and 60 days to use it. And that $100 is going to go a long way. They've got droplets starting from just $5 a month. So you'll really get a chance to check out everything they've got to offer, including their block storage and object storage, which can add on to your droplets really easily. Not to mention the really easy backups and the cloud firewalls. And they've got quite a few different distros, Ubuntu, Fedora, Debian, CentOS, FreeBSD, and some container distros as well, CoreOS, Fedora Atomic, and RancherOS. 
and loads of one-click apps like Basic Lamp and Lempstacks, WordPress, Discourse, GitLab, or you can just go for the basic distro and build it up yourself. And you should definitely check out their blog. There's always tons going on over there. In the last couple of weeks, they've announced the ability to bring custom images. So if you're not happy using one of those other distros, then you can just bring your own. And something that they're starting to roll out now is Kubernetes. And that is limited availability at the moment. So you can sign up or you can just wait a little while until it becomes generally available. And they've also announced the fifth annual Hacktoberfest, which is pretty simple. If you make five pull requests to GitHub in the month of October, then you can get a cool t-shirt and there's 50,000 of them available. So you've got a pretty good chance. So again, check out the DigitalOcean blog for that. So go to do.co slash LNL and get $100 to get you started. That's do.co slash LNL. On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. And remember that if you sign up for Patreon at $5 or more, you can get ad-free feeds so you don't have to listen to adverts anymore or skip them. Not that anyone would do that. <laughs> um, if you want to learn more about how to do that, um, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. There's also PayPal and stuff, as I mentioned. And if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact. So um, one bit of admin is that the Mintcast needs new hosts. So um, hardcore listeners of this podcast may remember that I got my start in Linux podcasting on Mintcast. Mintcast, of course, is the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. Uh, I moved on from it. I just didn't have time to do it anymore and also um, don't really care for Mint anymore for reasons that I won't go into here. Um, but <laughs> a lot of people do like Mint. Um, and so, so anyway, um, it's had many different hosts over the years, Mintcast. Um, Rob and Isaac, who are currently doing it, um, well, Rob's actually been doing it for years now. I think he started around episode 50. Um, but it's it's bigger than its hosts, put it that way. It's been going for nearly 10 years. And Rob and Isaac are really cool guys and will help whoever takes over um you know with the transition and everything and i'm around potentially to help a little bit as well uh, with the audio side of things and whatever um it, it's not a huge commitment it's not like a really serious thing it's they just do it for the fun of it it's just kind of a hobby type deal so if you've been wanting to get into podcasting about linux and you don't think mint is shit <laughs> then um check it out mintcast.org and um they will, um, you know, help you if you get in contact with them, and hopefully that show can keep going because it's a shame when something of that age uh, dies. And I really wanted it to make it to ten years. There was supposed to be like a reunion episode at ten years, but I don't think that's happening now. But um, yeah, check it out, mintcast.org. Um, all right. Well, uh, this section, I suppose, is Joe has some questions for the audience and needs help or something. Um, and so I have quite an unusual situation, I think, insofar as. I have a network storage device, a NAS, essentially running Samba, which uh, has got two drives in it um, that is a ZFS pool. So I've got a redundancy there and obviously bit rot protection as well. I've also got a desktop machine, um, which my wife uses, and that has got uh, an NTFS partition in it where she stores all her photos so she can access them from the Windows partition don't ask. Yes, okay, I could have probably done it a better way, but whatever. I'm stuck with that. And obviously NTFS does not have bit rot protection. Um, she's also got a laptop, 
which she's using more these days. Um, and so getting the photos onto the NAS is easy, right? But the problem is this. I want the NAS and the desktop to have uh, the same data on it, the same um, photos and videos and everything. But that desktop is not on very often. Now, I'm used to machines being on all the time and being able to schedule stuff, but this desktop only goes on at certain times of day randomly. And so if I do it with cron, then I suspect those jobs will fail. And I don't know, I just don't have any experience with uh, setting up cron jobs that uh, fail. So I suppose, first of all, you two, have you got any advice for me? How how can I make it? Because it would be logical to just um, set up an R-Sync job from the desktop to the NAS, but then I'd lose the bit rot protection because it will just overwrite with the bad, rotten bits over the ZFS copy. So it needs to go the other way around. So, yeah, first of all, you two, have you got any uh, suggestions for me? Um, it's a sp- it's, I've used Sync thing, so it doesn't solve all of your problems, but at least syncing one side of that that worked really well for this exact kind of scenario of syncing photos across two different drives but it doesn't solve the bit rot problem yeah because it, i know that once they get onto that zfs my bit rot yeah. problem is taken care of but how do i get them back onto that desktop that isn't if that desktop was left on all the time in an office or something mm. then we wouldn't be having this conversation but the fact that it's only on sporadically for an hour or two a day at, at random that that's the problem that I've come up with here. I, I, and I suspect that a lot of the audience won't have come across this because IT people are just used to leaving machines on all the time, but um, it's noisy and uses a lot of juice and it's just, that's not happening. That's not a solution to this. Yeah, well, then you've only, you've just got to sync one way for that to work. Exactly, but because it's not on all the time, I yeah. don't know how to schedule that. That's the problem. But you could use sync thing to just sync one way. I mean, it'll just it'll just catch up. It'll catch up whenever the PC's on. Ah, it's the same as 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 um, the way that Nextcloud does a similar thing. Although Nextcloud's way more CPU intensive. Ah, right. There's a few things that do the same thing. It's basically, it's basically our sync, but with a daemon and waiting for you know like a, something to ask for it. You know what the simplest solution is? Go on. Pay someone to take care of this for you. <laughs> That'll take all the fun out of it. I know, right? But I, I've so we at home at my house, we have had yeah, various photos on various devices and we've tried to keep them all in sync. And I've spent years and years doing this. And, and at this point, I've given up and outsourced the entire problem to Google Photos and it works just fine. Yeah, she's not having that though. Because <laughs> believe it or not, my wife is more of a freedom lover than me. It's not that she's a freedom lover, but she's just more of a sort of big corporate. Uh, company hater she fucking hates amazon for example like i'm not allowed to buy stuff off them because they're a bunch of tax dodging bastards fair um which is fair it is true and i i I swore i wouldn't buy any more from them and then i was like ah i need these cables but it's so cheap yeah it's so cheap and so (laughs) fast she was like no you said that you weren't going to buy them so i was like all right fine buy them off ebay because they're much better than amazon (laughs) (laughs) i don't know Okay, this episode is sponsored by CDN77. Go to cdn77.com slash LNL. And they are a UK-based CDN provider with a standalone live streaming platform. And apart from sponsoring some great open source projects like CentOS, KDE, Fedora, and Gentoo, one of their biggest clients is the European Space Agency, who use CDN77 to deliver Hubble images all over the world. 
They're a real innovation leader. They were the first CDN to implement HTTP2 and Brotley compression. Everything's developed and managed by their in-house team. They don't outsource anything. And they can push 80 gigabits per second of live streaming through one machine, just through their own optimizations. And this CDN consists of 500 servers, all with the latest Debian, and only a few of them are virtual machines. Almost all of them are physical servers. And they've got 30 points of presence all over the world in North America, South America, Europe, Asia, and Australia, with over 7 terabits per second of total network capacity. They've got great 24-7 live support, and you can either go pay-as-you-go or go for one of their monthly plans. Either way, there's no commitment or hidden costs. You can get a 14-day free trial with no credit card needed. Just go to cdn77.com slash LNL. And if you use that link to sign up and go beyond the free trial, then you'll get an extra first payment bonus. So whether you want to speed up your website and increase your SEO ranking, or if you've got gigabytes of video that you want to stream all around the world, go to cdn77.com slash LNL and start delivering your content. All right, well, let's crack on with more news. And Mir 1.0.0 has been released, which is very much them saying Mir is not dead, contrary to popular belief. It's going strong. We're up to a 1.0 release. It's stable now. And apart from the kind of IoT um, embedded systems use case, which is kind of what we've known it for since um, the whole dropping of Ubuntu phone and everything, it's now going to work with the XDG shell to make Wayland possible for potentially things like the Mate desktop and potentially LXQ as well. Yeah, so let's not forget that Wayland is a protocol specification and not a display server in itself. So yes, adding Wayland support to Mir um, makes a lot of sense. And yeah, having it support all the XDG shell uh, extensions to Wayland means that uh, yeah, it'll be easy to get a, a different desktop shell running on top of Mir uh, as it would be on any other desktop compositor and uh, the benefits that they're in. So yeah, this is very exciting stuff. And um, the IoT use cases, I think, are especially interesting. And, and I just think of the, the things that you could build at home on a Raspberry Pi with uh, an Electron app and Mir on top of it, uh, sorry, underneath it, um, yeah, you could you could be out there building your own little kiosks and smart displays and that kind of thing uh, in seconds. So I think this is a real enabler for the hobbyist community as well. What, rather than having to rely on the big bloated X server then? Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, Will, you're a little bit closer to this than uh, some people. So it's probably an unfair question to ask you, but do you think that the 1.0 is a little bit premature for it? Do you think it is a, a statement release rather than a sort of genuinely stable 1.0? Ah, I think there's a bit of truth in both of those arguments. Um, it is important that people understand that Mir is not dead. You know, there's a team behind it. They're developing these features all the time. They're fixing bugs. It's a really high-quality piece of code. Uh, so I think it's important to to make their mark and say what we're doing is interesting, stable, and useful to people. And, yeah, it is stable and it is usable and so it is worthy of a 1.0 release and people should go try it out and build their kiosks yeah i keep meaning to try out that um kiosk snap and um, popey's talked about it he's got this uh, really old thinkpad that he's got ubuntu core running on and um with that kiosk snap you can then get chromium browser i think and actually get a proper gui and you know chromium is going to give you almost all of the web isn't it so that's yeah. pretty pretty cool that that is uh, available i keep meaning to install ubuntu core and, uh, and check it out and this is uh, probably going to push me over that edge 
Um, all right, well, um, more Ubuntu stuff. Uh, and a blog post by some twat. Um, <laughs> I don't know who this is. Uh, oh, yeah, Will Cook. That's you. That guy. Yeah. So this is about Hyper-V. So you have been working with the enemy at Microsoft. Steady on. <laughs> sorry, sorry, your friends at Microsoft, <laughs> as you say in this blog post, um, to to make it um, really, really trivial to get the Ubuntu desktop running in a VM on Windows. Correct. And you say steady on to call them the enemy. Now, clearly, we are seeing a, a change, and we have seen a change. Um, and, you know, you talk about working with uh, your friends or our friends or whatever. I mean, how much work... How much collaboration was there? I mean, it must have been a proper collaboration to do this. So the work involved from us was uh, packaging on XRDP, HVSOC was already there, and then producing uh, an image which was pre-configured to use all of those uh, various technologies. Um, so when you log in for the first time, you're asked to set up your user account, your, your location, your language, that kind of thing. And then it restarts and you're into the HVSOC uh, enabled enhanced session, which gives this nice clipboard interaction and, and those kinds of things so yeah a lot of the work was done by microsoft um and uh, we we just had to sort of tie up the loose ends really and so this is what you were talking about on the last show uh, when you were in brussels you and graham had been playing with this hadn't you oh yes yes exactly that yeah yeah so um we got the nod from microsoft to say that it was now live. Uh, would we like to go and have a look at it? So we went <laughs> went off to find a Windows 10 machine, which was quite tricky to do. Uh, but eventually we found one, and we had to remove a lot of software on the, off of there in order to get Hyper-V installed because uh, apparently Hyper-V and VMware don't coexist especially well. So we had to convince somebody to reconfigure their Windows 10 laptop, which they did. And we fired it up and we said, quick create, and, and there was Ubuntu. That's interesting that it doesn't play nicely um with VMware, I wonder if that's deliberate or if that's just um, a fuck up. <laughs> I don't know. I, I suspect it's VMware doesn't play nicely with Hyper-V, but I don't know. Ah, uh, right. I see. It's kind of the same on Linux, isn't it? If you install VMware, it installs so many kernel drivers. You've probably got to disable it if you want some of the kind of hypervisor running. Mm. I've always just used VirtualBox, which um, does something to the kernel, which I don't like. So yeah, I tend to avoid it if possible go for bare metal installs on one of my stack of laptops. But um, we know why Microsoft have done this, because if we look at the next story, and that is that at least half of uh, Azure, Azure, I don't know how you say it, is running Linux, which shouldn't be a surprise, but kind of is, really. Um, this is Microsoft's cloud offering, and at least half, maybe 60%, maybe even more, of the VMs there are running Linux. And it really does explain why they're cozying up with you lot so much. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't so long ago we'd have probably accused Microsoft of trying to stifle the idea that you could run Linux on their cloud or on their virtualization platform. So it's a good thing that this is the, that this is the way that they're approaching it. Well, more Linux anywhere has got to be yeah, good, yeah. even if it is on Microsoft's cloud. It's a similar set of stats on any kind of cloud, so I don't think it's that surprising that it's the same for Microsoft as well. What, is it about half on um, AWS? I would have thought that would have been way more. But I mean in terms of Linux dominance. So it's no surprise that it's a good chunk of Azure installs or, or whatever the word is, instances. Also, it's free. Well, that's true. Well, mostly. Yeah, obviously you have to pay for Red Hat um, if you want that, but... Yeah, there are a lot of free distros that you can install on Azure. 
I, I always get the piss taken out of me when I go on American shows and say azure. But azure is a color, isn't it? Like it's the the blue of the sky is that blue is called azure, but they say azure, so they always take the piss out of me. So fuck you, Americans. <laughs> it's, it's azure. Yeah, it's azure. Okay, good. At least you're backing me up on this. But it, it, this really does explain a lot of Microsoft's recent behavior, doesn't it? They're embracing of Linux because if people are going to be running that on their infrastructure and that is where they're focusing a lot of their resources because there's a lot of money to be made there and I always say it Microsoft are following the money and the money's in open source so I do genuinely believe that they have changed they they haven't changed in that they are you know they're not suddenly a uh, a communist utopia or a socialist <laughs> utopia even they are a ruthless capitalist company who are trying to make as much money as possible and that means getting involved with Linux because Linux is where the money is. I think there's an important distinction here between open source being where the money is and Linux being where the money is. This is definitely Linux is where the money is and this is where they're going Uh, and part and parcel of that is perhaps that they do contribute more to open source projects in order to better their uh, Linux offering. But surely most of the stuff that runs on Linux is open source, isn't it? And therefore the two go hand in hand. Well, I guess it depends where you draw the line. Um, the underlying services you know, could be an open source database, an open source web server. Um, but the service that's built on that could be Facebook, for example, which you know yeah. none of that code is open source. Um, well, okay, bad example. Some of that code is open source. But yeah. you, know, you know where I'm going with this. So... Um, yeah, the, the underlying nuts and bolts are open source and free and also free. Um, but the, the projects that they build on top of them, um, that's, where, that's where the profit generation is coming from. Well, Microsoft obviously cared loads about open sourcing all of their code. And they're starting <laughs> from scratch, I suppose, almost, um, because they've re-open sourced MS-DOS 1.25 and 2.0 which they'd originally donated to the Computer History Museum, but now it's properly on GitHub with a very confusing license that first of all says all rights reserved and then says it's MIT, do what you like with it. So I don't know. I don't know enough about licenses, but that I found very confusing. But at least it's on GitHub to be studied. Yeah, and they specifically call out, like, please don't open bugs because we're not going to fix them. (laughs) Yet you go and look at the GitHub account and there are issues logged galore. Um, but it's good fun. But the the general theme that I'm sensing from the internet is when MS-DOS 3.0 gets open sourced, then things get interesting. Why is that then? I think it's a good enabler for, for good old DOS games. Ah, uh, I see. Is this going to close all that conjecture that um, Microsoft stole some of the old MS-DOS code? Is there, are there loads of people now running all kinds of comparisons against hmm. um, other versions of DOS that were knocking about at the time? <laughs> it's nice, though. I'm looking through the... Um, it's nice to see all this assembler. <laughs> but what about free dos isn't that kind of good enough for the old games like what would 3.0 actually um benefit people can you run windows on 3.0 i think you're right i think you're right windows 3 probably ran on 3 ms dos 3.0 didn't it yeah so long ago you two are showing your age here (laughs) my first computer was uh, windows xp i'm afraid well actually that's not true it was an amstrad but uh had a big gap in the middle but uh yeah, that would be interesting then, if you could have an open source basis to run Windows on. But, I mean, this is all academic stuff, isn't it, at the end of the day? It's not really going to be, apart from a few old games, um, 
I can't see it being of much use. It's it's really just academic interest, isn't it? Yeah, I think from a historic perspective, you know, MS DOS is a formative part of the the history of PC, the PC x86 platform, and the success of, and dominance of it and computing in general. So, I think you know the Computer History Museum is a good place for it to have been placed, and it's nice that anyone can now take a look themselves. Yeah. Well, something that I keep thinking will be resigned to history is Sailfish OS, <laughs> but apparently not, because they are gearing up for their big 3.0 release and more devices. And we don't actually have any um, releases yet, but they're imminent, certainly according to this blog post. But the question is, do we really care? Because this, although this is Linux-based, it's not very open source. It's not the great hope for a completely free software phone or anything. Um, and it seems to be, well, it has historically struggled, Yola, the company, mm. and therefore Selfish, the project, um, or the product, I suppose. So is it something that we should care about? <sighs> We used to make jokes about this. I don't know, five, six, seven years ago when it was well, when it came away from Mego. Yeah, um, and e even then, it kind of typified what Nokia was trying to do, and Intel was trying to do, and people trying to hedge their bets rather than concentrating on creating a usable AI. Although it did, it did result in some, you know, nice frameworks and some interesting experiments. I don't know if it's relevant anymore. Well, it's certainly relevant to a number of people who got the Selfish X yeah. ROMs and put them on the um, the Xperia phones, and they're going to have another Xperia phone that looks a bit more modern. So it, it's not completely dead, is it? There are certainly a number of enthusiasts. And the thing is that the experience of it, from what I have tried, and I, I put a fairly recent version on a OnePlus One, and it feels like a modern operating system that is well put together, and it is a generally nice experience and they were the first alternative to uh, to get android apps working and they work reasonably well so i don't understand why it hasn't been more successful really but definitely you make it sound like i should use it i should uh, if that's the case i should definitely try and uh, install it on something but what <laughs> well that's the problem isn't it it's not so, like lineage where there's yeah. you know, loads of devices and you can pick one up off ebay for 50 quid or whatever um you're really limited to a certain number of devices. But I think if you can get hold of one, um, I don't know if the, the ROMs for the OnePlus One are still available. You could probably pick up OnePlus One pretty cheaply. Um, I could probably lend you my one, except the, uh, the Wi-Fi antennas snapped off, so you have to be pretty close <laughs> to the router to make it actually work. Um, and you can only get about, I don't know, 50 megabits a second or something but it's good enough to test it but yeah you should definitely check it out because it has come along in leaps and bounds and um i'd like to see it be significantly more open source uh but it is a linux-based operating system and it is a i think potentially a viable alternative to ios and android it's maybe well it's not as good as ios there's no doubt about that and it's not as good as android but it's Sorry, chaps, uh, uh, UbiPorts, it is better than Ubuntu <laughs> Touch, I must say, from what I have tried of it. It's more usable as a daily driver. So I, I don't wish it any ill will. I wish it goodwill, actually. I wish that it would be really successful and they could find some way to monetize it to the point where they could completely outsource it. But I think I'm pretty much dreaming there. <laughs> So I suppose that'll do it for this episode then. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks, hopefully, with a four-man team. 
Uh, but until then, I've been Joe. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. Bye.